Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally from magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. A group of hornbills, about 10 of them, all landed in the tree, like right around me. And one of them landed right on the same branch that I was sitting on. And I could feel it, like I could feel the branch shake, you know, just so close to me. And then they were moving around the tree, feeding, and I, and I got this one shot. That was Nat Geo photographer Tim Lehman. And it's time for Great Adventures. Tim, so glad to have you on. Such an admirer of your work. Let's talk about that initial trip to Borneo and what inspired that and then how you started your work there. I first went to Borneo in 1987. Um, I actually, you know, I studied biology in school. I was into field biology and I spent a couple summers in college working on different field projects. But then I kind of got really into animal behavior and more of the neuroscience side of it, the brain side of it. And so I, I had a brief diversion into lab science where I first went to grad school and actually in neurobiology, which was a fascinating field, but then I realized pretty quickly that, you know, I don't want to be a lab scientist, even though <laughs> trying to figure out how the brain works is an amazing problem. You didn't want to put a coat on and sit around uh, a no, bunch of No, I decided that wasn't my thing. So then I, I, uh, I was a grad student at Harvard in the neurobiology program, but then I decided, now this is not my thing. I decided to take a leave of absence, and I met this Harvard professor in the more in the ecology evolution field, uh, Mark Layton, who had this project in Borneo. And I was kind of hunting around for getting back into field biology. And he was looking for research assistants. So I said, okay, I'm just going to take a year off, sign up, go to Borneo for a year <laughs> as a volunteer and live in the, you know, live in deep in the rainforest at this remote kind of rustic research camp. Uh, so off I went. And that was my first experience in the rainforest. Uh, I took you know all the camera gear I could sort of afford with me. I was really had this idea like I really want to take my you know work on my nature photography, figure out how to photograph the rainforest, and so yeah, I spent a whole year there working for for Mark, um, doing animal censuses, doing doing a botanical surveys, uh, all kinds of things. This amazing place called Gunung Palung National Park, and. You know, I still go there to this day. I was there three times last year. So uh, what that led to was really kind of a lifelong love of rainforest and fascination with exploring these, you know, richest, most biodiverse places in the world. So what did your friends and family think when you said, I'm going to pack up and, and go to Borneo? Uh, they, my, my parents were supportive. They, you know, they've always been, you know, sort of supportive that I'm going to find my way uh, I've never been career oriented in the sense of uh, I went to grad school, for example, because I thought it'd be fascinating to study, and I'm going to keep pursuing this interest. And so when I, you know, told my parents, well, I'm stepping out of neurobiology grad school, I'm going to go to Borneo for a year, they're like, well, if that's what you want to do. I'm sure you know it'll it'll work out. And so. 
Um, yeah, and I ended up, after that first year in Borneo, I ended up going back to, to grad school, and I, and I did my PhD in ecology, uh, and specializing in rainforest ecology. I decided I wanted to go back to Borneo and work at that same site for my PhD research. So when you're coming out of the college system and heading to Borneo, that seems like me thinking about that right now, that seems like that'd be a bit of a shock lifestyle wise. How did you prepare for that? Did you guys have cabins? What were the lodgings like? Tell me about that change. I've always uh, been an enthusiast, you know, outdoor enthusiast, uh, sort of backpacking and camping and so on. Uh, I was active in scouts when I was a teenager, um, did all the long backpacking trips and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, I was Eagle Scout, so you know when I went. Nice, to, same. I, yeah, here so, we go. All right. So when I uh, went to, you know, talking to actually this, you know, Professor Layton about going to Borneo, I said like, yeah, I, yeah, I spent like you know two months sleeping in a sleep, you know, sleeping in a tent last year on all these different backpacking trips and stuff, and I, you know, I've uh, Eagle Scout and all this. He's like, yeah, you'll be fine in the jungle, you know, in the forest. So uh, I mean, so of course it was a, you know, it's obviously a change from living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to going to a little tiny. Uh, village in Indonesia and then going up river for a whole day to this remote camp in the jungle which is basically a um, kind of one main building which was our base camp where we kind of cooked and ate and had lab space and stuff working area and then a few little huts sort of scattered just open air basically a tin roof over a wooden platform floor where we just sort of slept under mosquito nets you know on on an air mattress. What I love is with a place like Borneo, I'm sure it was the same experience for you where you do all this research. I'm sure you were preparing, you're gathering all your gear, getting ready for this trip for this year. And you were probably like, okay, this is what I expect in Borneo. It's what going to be, this is the vegetation, this is the animal life. What about Borneo blew you away when you first stepped actually into the jungle? I think it was probably, you know, this the size of the trees and the extensiveness of that kind of canopy layer up above me. Because I remember walking in the first day and uh, I was fascinated by all wildlife, but I had a lot of interest in birds. Uh, I was eager to see the hornbills, these largest rainforest birds. And, you know, I heard them flying over with their big, loud wing beats. You know, <laughs> their, their wings make this amazing sound. But, you know, when they land on the top of the trees, you know, I could barely see them, even with binoculars. They were like 50 meters, you know, 150, 160 feet up. Um, so I remember from that, like, very first, you know, week or so, I was in the forest thinking, like, man, I, I got to get up in the top of the trees. This is, like, <laughs> ridiculous being stuck on the ground. All the fun's happening up there. Yeah. All the action was in the top of the canopy. Um, or a lot of it, anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, actually during that first year, I got more and more serious about the idea of like getting up in the trees. And I, I had a, a friend um, who was coming out to Indonesia, bring a climbing rope and some climbing gear. Uh, I'd done quite a bit of rock climbing and stuff before that. So I was familiar with, you know, using ropes and harnesses and things. And so um, my first method was just using a slingshot to shoot a uh, fishing line. Uh, over a branch and pull up my climbing rope. And so the first kind of serious tree that I climbed was one of these big big diptera carps. That's the, the dominant family of trees in Borneo that make up that you know incredibly commercially valuable wood, you know, up to six feet diameter oh, wow. trees uh, would be the biggest ones that are over 200 feet high. And um, to get up those, you know, I, I picked one out up on the hill behind the camp that I knew would have this amazing view out over the canopy. 
and uh, but my slingshot wouldn't reach the lowest branch. You know? <laughs> so I had to climb a tree next to it first, oh, wow. and then kind of get halfway up, and then like you know keep pulling up my line and shooting my slingshot. And of course, it's like you're getting lines tangled in branches, <laughs> and you know it's it was a struggle. But eventually, I got a line up in that big tree, climbed up there, and and had this you know amazing view of the sunset. You know, out looking out over this pristine rainforest canopy. Wow. Um, and I think. I was I was hooked after that so I bet then I actually started trying to come up with ideas of what I could do research on up in the canopy mm. when I wanted when I because I was already thinking like okay I'm going to come back and I'm going to go back get in, you know start my PhD come back here and do sort of a PhD project in the, in the rainforest canopy and so um, which I ended up doing um, that planted the seed that planted the seed yeah and then uh, I came up with this idea to study the strangler fig trees because they were really the places where I saw the most you know congregation of wildlife up in the canopy mm -hmm. these big these I mean they're a fascinating tree that uh, grows on top of other trees so unlike most of the trees in the rainforest that start from the ground as a little seedling these strangler figs have come up with a strategy to take a sort of shortcut to the to the top of the forest where all this light is. And, you know, after their fruit's eaten by a bird or monkey or something and their droppings land on a branch or ideally in like a tree crotch where there's some soil, they germinate like up in the top of another tree. And they can just kick off their, their process there. And, and they there. start growing and then they send a long root down to the ground, uh, growing down the trunk of the host tree. And sometimes they can really wrap around the host tree and even, you know, and the host tree can't grow anymore and it dies and then they become this freestanding, almost like basket-like trunk. Oh, wow. After the host tree rots away, they could be 100 years old and the host tree could be completely rotted out and they're, they're this amazing meshwork trunk that you know supports this huge crown. A lot of the trees there in Borneo, because these host trees are so huge, most of them don't actually kill their host. Most of the strangler figs, they, they just grow on the top and put out all their energy into producing a lot of leaves and fruit and so I got fascinated with those plants and I thought well this is something that obviously needs to be studied in the canopy because they germinate up in the canopy uh, I can study like you know how uh, aspects of their their biology and also the animals that feed on them and disperse their seeds and so that led to uh, yeah coming back to, to Borneo over the next several years uh, doing doing research and also kind of trying to keep taking my photography to a, a higher level. One of the things that people try to imagine is the amount of patience, you know, something like that, especially being up above that canopy and trying to experience or catch something with a human eye that's never been seen before or a unique experience, whether it's those fig trees. What kind of wildlife were you catching, you know, being around there, being around those fig tree areas, whether it's monkeys or the hornbills, perhaps, and what what moments fascinated? What moments were you very excited to be able to document? Yeah, so I had a chance to um, visit National Geographic kind of early in my um, PhD research time out there. So I had actually gotten a grant from the Geographic Society. This was in their uh, Washington, D.C. office. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'd applied for some funding to, you know, go do this work in Borneo. I'd gotten a grant from them. And so this gave me a connection to them. And I, you know, 
I, I talked with uh, people from the research grant committee, and I said, hey, I'm, I've been taking pictures in Borneo, you know, in the canopy, and, you know, I think I'd like to try to show somebody at the magazine. And they said, well, we can get you an appointment because, you know, with one of the editors. And so I went down to D.C. Uh, with a very sort of carefully selected, you know, portfolio of my best pictures in these black slide sheets hmm. um, and I had this appointment with with Mary Smith the now retired photo editor kind of a legendary photo editor that worked with a lot of the scientists you know and um, she said uh, you know well we you know we have a lot of scientists who think they can take pictures but very few of them can you know but I'll have a look at yours you know <laughs> and, and so that's a little um, that's a little uh, what's the word I want to say it's a little intimidating intimidating yeah yeah so you know, she finally pulled up this light table in her office and she like glanced at the slides, like without even using a loop or anything, just kind of briefly, like she, I think she, I had like three or four sheets. She's eyeballing your just slides. Just eyeballing the yeah. slides like from a distance, you know, and she can get a gist of the composition or whatever, I guess, just looking at these tiny slides. Then she like maybe looked at one or two of them with her loop and she says, she says, well, you've got some potential, you know, but you're not going to get a story in our magazine yet because we have... You know, we have too many good photographers. You got a lot more work to do. But she said, if you're going to go back to Borneo, I'll give you a film. I'll give you as much film as you want. Just call me up. I'll send you film. So with that inspiration, you know, I went back and I started. Um, I also she, uh, she also said she'd look at my pictures. I could send them in. So with that inspiration, I went back and I think I had started to realize at that point that you know, it's not about like how many pictures you take or whatever. You just need like a few really good ones. Mm -hmm. And so I really, and I had time on my hands. You know, I was in Borneo for another year mm. uh, doing my PhD work and stuff. So when I had the right opportunity, when I had the right tree that was fruiting at the right stage, I would climb up there in the dark like every morning, you know, and spend several hours waiting for, you know, animals to come. Um, and I probably did that like a hundred days wow. during that year, and and so maybe during that year. And actually, I worked on that story over several years because there were several years there where I went for a few months a year, and I went for a whole year. So I'm sure I logged a hundred days in canopy blinds, and once you know, I tried different things. I tried being in the the tree next to the fig tree, like looking from the outside as as birds and animals came in. But then I thought I wasn't getting close enough. So then I tried like getting right in the middle of the tree. Like I climbed up into the <laughs> sort of the center of the tree where the branches were coming out and I covered myself in camouflage and I waited. And I remember one amazing moment when a group of hornbills, uh, like they don't usually travel in big groups. Usually they're these rhinoceros hornbills. Usually they're in pairs. But occasionally you have a group of juveniles, kind of younger ones. And about 10 of them all landed in the tree, like right around me. And one of them landed right on the same branch that I was sitting on. And I could feel it, like thump, I could feel the branch shake. You know, it was so close to me. And uh, and then they were moving around the tree, feeding. And I, and I got this one shot where this hornbill is like tossing a fig in the air. And I kind of, I captured just the right moment. As he was tossing, I was trying to time it and kept timing it. He was tossing and tossing and I... I got one sh one frame where the fig is like right in midair between you know his upper and lower beak, wow. um, and that was like the opening picture of my first geographic article. That's amazing. I mean, when you got that, did you know that this was gonna be something? Well, this was the days of film, You're right? So right. of course, I didn't. I thought this was like a really amazing moment, and I was very excited, and I knew I got something good. But of course, 
unlike now where you can just look at your camera and say, did I get it? You know, yeah. is the fake like in midair like I want it to be or is he touching it? You know, I, I had to wait for months yeah. until I like went back to civilization to develop my film. And then what was it like to to have that and then send it off to Nagio and, and wait for their response? Yeah, so uh, I sent some film back with a colleague who was going back to the States and then I... Um, Mary Smith, the first editor I met with, she had actually left the Geographic in the meantime, but she had said, I'm passing you on to my colleague, Johnny Chave. So I never met Johnny Chave, uh, but he's told, he sent me a, a, a letter or message, obviously this is way before email, and he said, like, I want to talk to you on the phone. <laughs> so I, it took me two days to get to town to where there's a phone <laughs> from the research camp. But I decided, okay, I guess I better, I got this letter from him. I said, I guess I better talk Not to Donald. him. Not yeah. Yeah, and so I took a four-day journey to like go two <laughs> days by boat to town uh, to go make this phone call to National Geographic. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so then I, you It was know, like a pay phone or something? Yeah, it was from a, well, these, uh, like a little phone center, like, you know, um, <laughs> called a Wartel in Indonesia where you go in, you pay, you know, you, they give you a both, they time your call and everything. It's a little, little telephone center. This is in the sort of mid-90s, right? So, um, so I call him up and he, you know, and he's, he says, you got, you got some good stuff. I think, you know, we got a story in the making here, but, you know, we, we really need like a human element. It's cool that you're climbing up into the, these trees and everything, and that's a great part of the story. You know, we need like one or two shots of like somebody in the canopy besides just all these animals, you know, and, and he gave me other advice as well, but that I particularly remember. And, and uh, you know, he really kind of gave me some coaching over the phone on the types of shots <laughs> I needed to like round out the story. Um, I mean, one thing I really learned was, you know, every shot has to be different. Like in, in the geographic, in a geographic story where you maybe only have 10 or 20 pictures, you can't have like a picture of a hornbill eating a fig and a picture of another bird eating the fig and another bird eating the fig. It's all the same thing. It's got to be something right. completely different. Every shot has to be not just a different species, but a different behavior, a different emotion, a different action, a different part of the story, right? Yeah, used in a unique and effective yeah. way. Wow, that's 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 powerful. Let's hear a little bit about the human element that you're talking about there. And maybe while you're on the ground for so long, obviously you have Mark there you did your work with initially. Were you able to hang out with the locals? Were you able to make you know friendships and, and, and relationships with the people of the villages? And what was it like really being immersed in that culture? Or was it more a process of just going out there and doing your own sort of solo secluded thing? Well, um, the situation there, because we're so far from the village, we had a group of Indonesian men that worked as research assistants at the, at the field camp, at the research station. So, of course, um, I became close to them uh, and work, you know, some, some of them I still, I still know. I mean, I still see them when I go out to Borneo uh, to this day, 30 years later. Mm. Uh, but I also uh, started working with my wife, Cheryl Knott, at that time. So after that initially working with Mark, I then, you know, I started my own work on my PhD. So I was going back there on my own. And then my wife, Cheryl, or she wasn't my wife at the time, but my, I met this woman in grad school at Harvard <laughs> who was interested in great apes and oh, wow. doing research on great apes. Yes. And she originally was thinking of working with her advisor, uh, Richard Rangham, uh, on chimpanzees in Uganda. He had a, you know, he's been doing research in, uh, at a research station in Uganda for many, many years. And so that's kind of her original plan. But then we 
got together and you know I, I was sort of a few years ahead of her in grad school and I sort of was thinking okay well if I finish up in Borneo and if she's going to do her PhD in Africa that sounds pretty cool maybe I can come up with a project I can you know get some funding I can go with her when she does her PhD work in on chimps I can do something there yeah get some uh, canopies yeah find the <laughs> you know climb the trees there uh, and so we kind of had this plan like okay I'll go with her to Africa but then I said you know to Cheryl well, I've got to go do a few more months of work to finish up my field work. So why don't you come with me to Borneo and you can check out the orangutans because the site I work at is an amazing place to study orangutans. And so she thought that would be cool. Um, her advisors at Harvard were kind of against it. They're like, don't take another semester off to go to Borneo. Just focus on the chimps or whatever. Right. But she was like really determined. to. So, so she did it anyway. And what happened was like a long story short you know we spent time in Africa we spent time in Borneo she decided that the orangutans were actually you know really suitable for the kind of questions she wanted to ask she wanted mm -hmm. to study reproduction and what um, it was easier to follow orangutans females from day after day after day multiple days and collect urine samples so that you could get study get their hormones and so on which is really hard with chimps because the females are always disappearing from the group it's hard and, to keep up with yeah whereas the orangutans the females are in the trees you can keep up with them on the ground they, they don't come down to the ground hardly at all so anyway uh cheryl decided to do her phd back in borneo so i was like okay i'll there we go. make it happen and go with you uh and so then she went back for a whole year to do her phd and I'd already finished mine, but that was the time when I really concentrated on the photography as well as I had another research project going. But yes, um, you guys had a whole life in Borneo. So then we started, uh, yeah, we started going to Borneo together. Um, and then Cheryl has continued, you know, her orangutan research now for 25 years. So she, so, so we've been going there ever since. Obviously the right call. Yeah. For you both. <laughs> Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistle Pig Whiskey. Their American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistle Pig Whiskey. Can you tell us about the food out there? Well, our... Food supplies were limited to things that uh, uh, pack out. Were, could be could be easily transported in by by canoe or be carried in by porters because uh, and we didn't have refrigeration or anything. So uh, we, you know we had this the basic this is in basic Indonesian food. So it's mm -hmm. like staples rice and uh, we used to bring in some canned goods uh, from town, but. Uh, now we've really switched over to just completely local local produce and stuff because there uh, we have a little bit better in recent years there's a good trail to the village it's about a three or four hour hike for a you know a fit person mm. uh, so we have a guy whose job description is he's called the veggie man <laughs> and he carry every two twice a week he like hikes in like a full backpack like you know 50 pounds of fresh food from the village like oh, where wow. you get like you know so we get like tempeh and tofu which they make in the village and we get all kinds of veggies uh, and 
you know, by boat, they bring in rice and they bring in crates of eggs and stuff. So we don't have any fresh meat, but we, you know, we get our protein from, you know, eggs and tempeh and tofu. And uh, we have lots of instant noodles and stuff for fallback <laughs> foods. You right. Know? The comfort foods if you <laughs> yeah. need them. Um, oatmeal and stuff. You know, we buy some things in like a supermarket in town now and like, you know, haul them in by boat. So we have like oatmeal and stuff for breakfast. And, wow. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's basically we have now the camp, you know, is, has a, a larger number of people working there besides, besides Cheryl uh, and her team, which is pretty big. She probably has like 15 people there at a given time, including research assistants and undergrads and grad students, both Indonesian and, you know, Westerners. Um, and then another biologist named Andy Marshall, who's a professor at Michigan, he also has a big project there called the One Forest Project, um, doing a lot of habitat comparisons of uh, vertebrates and also fruiting patterns and so on. Um, so he's doing a lot of cool stuff, and he's he has a you know good sized team out there as well. So there, um, there are now we have like you know a population of 25 30 people at this research camp. a whole camp. community at there. yeah so we have a we have a couple of staff you know cooks and people who um so yes yeah, so all you know uh indonesian fare that sounds amazing i mean when you initially took that trip to borneo little would you know that would turn into this whole community and experience and now that you spent so much time there and you had that lofty goal of seeing the hornbills what else were you able to capture now that you've been able to spend so much time what other experiences have you pursued out there in borneo yeah so you know because cheryl's studying orangutans obviously they have this amazing opportunity to photograph orangutans and they had not been very well photographed in the wild. Uh, even the earlier National Geographic articles from the 60s and 70s, they all kind of were featured a lot of captive animals as well. And nobody really documented, you know, the full lives of wild orangutans and all aspects of their behavior. And so I kind of set that as a goal and started going out with her teams. Um, and, you know, so that's continued. Uh, actually, we've done, you know, three different geographic articles over the years about orangutans. The most recent one in 2016 about orangutan cultural variation, sort of different orangutan populations in different parts of Borneo and Sumatra, you know, have different behaviors that they learn from their mothers, whether it's, you know, how to greet strangers or how to build a nest or, you know, there are interesting variations uh, that, the, that from place to place. So that was, you know, so I've basically been, you know, trying to uh, tell the story of wild orangutans and their habitat and inspire people to, you know, care about the the rainforest of, of Borneo and the, all the incredible diversity of life there. Yeah, absolutely. Because of your wife's work, you had this exposure to the orangutans. Yeah. You also got an award for one of the photos. Can you tell us about capturing that? Yes. Yeah, so for many years, you know, I, I only photographed orangutans really from the ground. Uh, occasionally, I tried getting up in the canopy and I did have a little success, but unlike the other animals that I photographed from blinds, you know, hiding in the canopy with camouflage, whether they're hornbills or gibbons or other monkeys, even these animals that are quite wary and skittish of people, like I was able to successfully hide and not be seen and photograph them. Rontons are just too smart. So <laughs> I would be, you know, completely hidden in a blind overlooking a fig tree and the rontan would come and he would start smacking at me. And mm. I could just tell like he was like saw me. 
you know, and uh, there was no way to hide. They're just too smart. They see something in the tree, just, just like a, I guess probably a person would. You know, you imagine if you were up in the next tree and you see, you'd look over and you'd see this kind of camouflage blob, and you're like, <laughs> that's not part of the tree. And you'd start thinking, like, what is in there? You know, I mean, mm. obviously, orangutans have the same thought process absolutely similar you know or similar thought process and so they're like suspicious of it that, you know unlike the other animals who just like kind of didn't notice what Whatever. it was yeah yeah uh so that didn't work okay so <laughs> basically i'm photographing orangutans from the ground following them i'm trying to scramble up the hill you know whenever we're in a hilly area i'm trying to get up above them so i can get an eye level view and you're not always like looking up from the ground because that sucks um <laughs> Photography 101, looking up from the ground. Looking from the ground against the sky, backlit, orangutan, not good, right? Not good. Yeah, get up on their level, horizontal, green background, nice color, nice light, much better. There we go. Yeah. So that was always my goal, but, you know, I was always shooting with a telephoto lens or medium, you know, never kind of uh, getting this wide perspective of the habitat with the orangutan in it, right? So I had this idea, like, it'd be really cool to get up in the canopy maybe with remote cameras and in a place where orangutan's coming climbing up and get that wide shot of the orangutan you know in the landscape and so i actually tried this several times uh, over the years with with uh, slrs you know with regular sized cameras um, hidden in camouflage boxes and things like that where i would put them up in a tree where i thought the orangutan was going to come back to feed in a tree that had a lot of fruit uh, and I always failed. The runtime always saw the camera, even though it was as camouflaged as possible, there always had to be a lens. Mm. Uh, and he would always see it, be suspicious, go around a different way, and not go past the camera. And so finally in 2015, uh, I decided, well, you know, GoPros have gotten pretty good quality. I'm going to try this with like these really tiny cameras. And maybe the runtimes won't notice them, or if they do see them, they won't care. And so. Luckily, that season I was out there, uh, one of the, actually a male and a female who were traveling together, uh, they kind of led me to this one tree one day that I realized was the perfect tree for the shot I wanted because it was isolated from the other trees, like the canopy wasn't touching. Most of the rainforest trees, you know, in a rainforest like in Borneo, the canopies are so close together, they're almost touching. Orangutan can just reach across, pull a branch, and they can cross. So you never know what their route is going to be to get to a tree. They could come in from five different ways or ten different ways. Uh, and But this tree, I saw the way the Orangutans were going up it. They, there was no connections up high. They had to come down really low about to like the lower level small trees and then swing over onto the trunk, and they had to climb up the trunk of this tree. And I saw the Orangutans come and leave the same way. So I'm like, okay, they have to go up that trunk. And so, and the trunk had this big fig root coming down it, which it was perfect for the Orangutans to climb up, to grab onto as they climbed. So I realized that was the perfect scenario to do this kind of dream shot that I had. And so as soon as Orangutans left, I got my equipment, I shot a, I shot a line, and now I, moved on from slingshots i have a bow and arrow system it's a little more powerful compound uh i have a compound bow for the really big trees there we go and i have a regular recurve bow for like the moderate size trees <laughs> and uh so don't i don't teach that photography class uh, no <laughs> so uh that's where the boy scouts comes in handy exactly um, i was like archery yeah i can do that um yeah, people describe me that basically I'm just like a grown-up Boy Scout. Everything I do is like the same stuff I was doing in Boy Scouts. I just like do it for my job now. Archery, tree climbing, photography, hiking, everything. Love it. Um, 
But anyway, uh, I fired a, you know my lineup. I got a lineup over the tree, pulled up climbing rope, um, got up there, and you know st- started rigging up cameras. And then for the next several days, the run times they did come back. Um, the light wasn't always good. The cameras didn't always work. You know, but one finally one time, um, the uh, sort of everything fell into place, and uh, I was triggering them remotely from the ground. You know, when the rontons came up, we were following the rontons, and when they came back and started climbing up the tree, I would start the camera just in time lapse mode, like taking mm. pictures every second. Um, yeah, and so I got one frame where the rontons like looking up toward the camera. He's climbing up the tree. It's like a really wide shot, and you can just see the just the trunk like going way down into the into the understory. You can see the rainforest canopy in the background. Uh, and so I entered that picture as part of a portfolio to the Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition that year. Um, it was part of the wildlife photojournalism uh, category uh, where I was telling the story of orangutans and how they're endangered. I had some pictures of the fires in Borneo from that year, some pictures of orphan orangutans that were a result of all the forest loss. Um, and I had pictures of rontons in the wild, you know, both a, a mother with a with a brand new baby kind of climbing on her, pulling on her face. I had, but then this shot was kind of that wide shot was one of the, um, really sets the scene for that little story, that little portfolio about the rontons and the crisis that they face and the importance of the habitat. You know, we can't survive without forest. So then that ended up, you know, being selected as the, the overall winner. Um, so I won the portfolio category for that for wildlife photojournalism, but then, you know, they, from all the winners of the different categories, they choose one, they choose an overall winner. And so they had selected that image. So it's a beautiful was, shot. And tell me about what it's like to actually be near animals like that, majestic creatures like that. You mentioned how they'd slap at you, you know, if they noticed you too much, but do you, do you sense, what do you sense from them? Yeah, it's um, obviously very intelligent creatures. Uh, it's really hard to interpret what they're actually thinking, but when you look at them and when they look at you, you definitely see something behind in those eyes. You know, you can tell that they're, it's different from looking, you know, at a dot or something where you really can't tell what if anything's going on there. But you know, the wrong time, you definitely feel like something's going on. Um, and so, it is a really amazing experience to spend time with them. And and you know, every every day is different. We never know what we're going to see. Some days you're out following for twelve hours, nothing really exciting happens. They just eat all day, and you know. You don't get any pictures at all because they're, you know, but then other times, you know, I'll have some, you know, some really interesting behavior will, will occur uh, that you'll get to see. I mean, I remember, yeah, just speaking of, you know, kind of the relation between humans and orangutans, I, I remember one really memorable morning. I was, I was hiking out into the forest. I had to, I had to cross the river. We have a, a beautiful river that comes down out of the mountains in, in Gunampalam. At the base of the mountain, it's kind of a rocky, boulder stream, and you can jump from kind of go, across, you know, stepping stones to cross it without getting your feet wet. It's quite wide, and so I'm like halfway across the river. It's just dawn. It's just getting light. It's kind of misty, and so I, I pause in the middle of the river on these rocks, just to kind of look up and down the river and check out the view, and just downriver from me like 20 30 yards away there's a big male orangutan and he's like doing exactly the same thing as me he's like crossing on the stepping stones going the other direction and he didn't even see me because he's just concentrating on what he's doing and i just felt this like such a commonality with him it was like these two apes you know we're just sort of passing in the dawn you know um 
That's a and beautiful you, and, you, and you can see why, you know, the word orangutan, it's the Indonesian word for person of the forest is what it means. So, yeah. you know, imagine the people that lived there when they first encountered, or the, you know, when humans arrived in Borneo and they they encountered these apes in the forest. They, they, I'm sure they seemed, you know, saw the quite commonality. Human-like. They saw the commonality. They called them out. They're the, they're the people of the forest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's beautiful. You mentioned there's a lot going on with our with our jungle and our in our world right now. Tell me about your experience in Borneo and, and your your love for the area and seeing what it's gone through. What do you think about the current state of where we're at? Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of changes over the last, you know, over 30 years since I first went there. Um, there were periods in the in the late 90s and the 2000s, especially after the fall of Suharto, um, when Indonesia became more, you know, more of a democracy and less of a dictatorship. Which we sort of thought, well, that's just great, but actually it meant for a free for all of, of corruption and exploitation of any kind of government land, like a national park. Uh, there was so there was a huge amount of illegal logging. It was very you know discouraging, um, and uh, and even around the the park where we work, where it's you know where it's theoretically not even protected, uh, but used to be all forest 30 years ago. Now you know most of those areas, or a vast majority of them, are you know, oil palm plantations or other kinds of agriculture, you know, rice, um, just cleared forests. So, I, you know, I've seen a huge amount of forest decrease um, in that region. On the other hand, uh, the, you know, the core of the national park is still this amazing rainforest. And even the logged areas that were illegally logged in the 2000s since that period the Indonesian, you know, administration has become, you know, much more proactive about preventing illegal logging. They have really good conservation-minded directors in the last uh, number of years. And, and, and so illegal logging is really reduced. And most of that forest um, within the park that was logged, it was only logged very selectively for the most valuable trees, mm-hmm. right? So it never burned. So those gaps have filled in, you know, and the younger trees are growing up. And there's still still perfectly good habitat for orangutans and all the other wildlife. So, what we've seen is that you know this large national park area, which is uh, over a thousand square kilometers and has probably maybe two thousand five hundred orangutans, you know, within the park, uh, and maybe a similar number like in the surrounding, you know, forests around outside the park. Uh, we've seen that you know this area is still intact. It's it's got a full complement of Borneo's biodiversity. Uh, you know we could lament the fact that Borneo isn't like have that same kind of forest from coast to coast anymore. Right. You know, and that huge eighty percent of the forest is gone or something like that. Uh, that may not be the right figure exactly, but a huge percentage yes has been converted. Um, you know we could lament that, but I you know I I think we can also think positively and think like, hey, there's still these really good chunks left. Cherish we, you we know, there, there, There's increasing, what I'm encouraged by is that there's increasing motivation that I see and interest among the Indonesian populace. The young people are good, you know, my wife's 
NGO there has, you know, uh, these youth groups that are like really enthusiastic about, you know, protecting the forest and about their wildlife and so on. You know, you see mm-hmm. um, on social media, you know, I post pictures from Indonesian of Indonesian wildlife. It gets so much positive response from Indonesians who care about their wildlife. So, you know, uh, you know, I don't think we're totally over the hump yet in terms of forest loss, but we're getting close, and I'm hoping, you know, I'm optimistic that um, the motivation is there uh, on the part of the Indonesian people to, like, protect, you know, the critical uh, remaining areas of yeah. the forest, and, and certainly internationally we have the support, but it's most important that, you know, people there in Indonesia yeah. uh, get, get on board, and they and they are. Increasingly, you know, they're, they have more opportunities um, besides being illegal loggers, you know, to, to make a living. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. So I'd love to hear just, you're speaking about this beautiful wildlife. You're speaking about this beautiful wilderness. You're speaking about, uh, these experiences that you've been able to have. And as someone that's so well versed in the area and has led some expeditions, you know, for Nat Geo, actually for one, for people out there who want to visit Borneo, what's the correct way to do it? What's the responsible way to do it? Yeah. So, um, you know, Borneo, the island of Borneo is divided between Indonesia and Malaysia. Uh, most of it's Indonesia, but the Malaysian side is, is more developed in terms of a tourist infrastructure right now. Uh, certainly, Indonesia has a lot of potential, and I think there'll be, you know, tourism and development in the future. Uh, right now, for example, in Gunung Palung, the park where we work, there's there's very limited um, sort of potential for, for tourism, for wildlife tourism. Infrastructure isn't there, really. Yeah, the infrastructure support, isn't there. Yeah. You, can, you can, if you're prepared to... Backpack in in and camp. There's some great camping sites by beautiful waterfalls and so on. You can hire local guides and you can organize, you know, if you're if you're up for that kind of a trip, uh, you can go there and have a good adventure. Um, But if you if you want a little bit more tame adventure to see some of the wildlife in Borneo, uh, I'd say right now, probably in the Malaysian Air, you know, a park, national parks in the Malaysian side. There are some good eco lodge, eco lodges mm. um, that are responsible and uh, you know offer the right kind of experiences that I would recommend looking into. Yeah, any that pop to the top of your yeah, uh, that, yeah. There's uh, there's one I think I think it's uh, also recommended by National Geographic. There's a place called the Borneo Eco Lodge uh, in the, near the village of Sukau. Um, it's in a place called the Kinabatangan Wildlife Sanctuary. Um, I've spent some time there photographing proboscis monkeys. Uh, you can see some of the elephants there, boarding elephants there, as well as you know hornbills and occasionally orangutans. Um, there's another. There's another really uh, good lodge called the Danum Valley Rainforest Lodge, um, where I've also you know worked out of some for for certain subjects. Nice. Put those in the show so, notes as well. That's okay. perfect. That's great recommendations. So I wrap this thing up with two questions. The first one is, if I gave you a plane ticket and you could go anywhere in the world and do anything, where would you go and what would you do? Well, if I was uh, going to go back to someplace I had been before, then I would probably go to the Raja Ampat Islands in Indonesia, which is one of my favorite places. Uh both because of the above water landscape and bird life, but also the marine life there, the diving. Um, although I do a lot of rainforest stuff, I also just am really fascinated by and love the underwater realm. 
uh, and coral reefs and uh, you know Rajampat is just uh, one of those amazing places where the reefs are still healthy uh, there's an incredible diversity of life and I really love diving there uh, so if I'm just gonna go on a fun trip and maybe do a little photography you know I would uh, I would like to go there, um, but I have plenty of other places that I like to explore. Give us one that you haven't been to. Places I haven't been to, I would love to go to uh, Patagonia, the Patagonia region in, in uh, Argentina, Chile, and South America. Um, just see the mountains and see the condors and um, pumas. Explore the yeah pumas and explore the landscape down there. So I'm also fascinated by the the Tipui regions of Venezuela, so uh, Mount Roraima and other nearby. Tapuis, uh, there's these sort of islands in the sky, you know, have this rainforest on top, big waterfalls. It's always um, it's kind of like, you know, the classic lost world kind of place. Uh, <laughs> still got some go- still got some goals out there. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to go explore. I don't know if you mind if I, you know, put a plug in, but I, I would like to, uh, you know, if people are interested in learning more about our work in Borneo, I would love to uh, direct them to uh, our website, which is simply called savewildorangutans.org. Absolutely. I love the work that you guys are doing, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. That'd be great. We're uh, inviting anybody who wants to kind of follow along on our adventures. We're, we're going to be doing a lot more kind of giving a lot more kind of behind the scenes content and insights on that website uh, to people who want to follow along. And then when I say the perfect sunset, what place comes to your mind? The perfect sunset. Well, uh, you know, an exciting sunset is when you stay up in the top of a rainforest tree a little too long to try to get that sunset shot. And maybe you forgot your headlamp and then you start (laughs) rappelling down and you realize it's pitch black in the forest and you have to uh, hike back to camp and uh, kind of feeling your way in the dark. (laughs) That's a unique one for sure. Maybe you're just captivated by that moment, right? Yeah, I've obviously seen hundreds if not thousands of sunsets yeah. um, but I uh, one image that came to mind was this sort of you know the view from the rainforest canopy in, in Borneo thanks so much for being here Tim thanks a lot it's been a pleasure thanks for listening guys if you like what you heard hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration if you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels. Conversations were recorded at Smile Radio, located in Smile to Go at the Freehand Hotel.